Hi, and welcome to Ideology. Drew Stedman here with Mick Murray. Today, we are going to dive into the topic of human sexuality. Obviously, this is a huge topic, and we've actually intentionally waited and not not gone into this so far on this podcast, mainly because it's such an obvious flashpoint in our culture today and in the church's interaction with culture. We've wanted to look at maybe some of the ideas and ideologies that inform our view of sexuality before we've tackled this topic head on, just because we feel like it is important. And so if you've been tracking with us, you've heard us talk a lot about ontology. Uh, In other words, what is real? That this concept of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, how we identify truth and what is objective versus subjective truth, how our culture informs our view of truth, And we would say that all of this ties into how we view contemporary social issues. And so it's not just an issue of what do we think about sexuality or what do we think about politics or what do we think about whatever it might be that is perhaps a bit more emotional and in front of us, but we actually have to go further back and say, what's the overall narrative that we're bought into? What arbitrates truth for us? Who do we even understand ourselves to be as a human person? It's not until we wrestle with that that we're actually able to then tackle whatever the contemporary topic is. And I'd say today, culturally, a lot of it is sexuality. I would imagine that five to 10 years from now, there might be a new topic that's the big flashpoint. There's always going to be flashpoints. There's always going to be topics that have a lot of emotion behind it. And we'll have to navigate those as they emerge. But the way to do that is we have to start by grounding ourselves deeply in the story that that word we use often is meta narrative of scripture and what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus who's shaped by the cross living in the world today and it's then that we're able to turn around and say how do we make sense of our world so with that as the introduction Mick why don't you take us into today's topic yeah and maybe a couple of other disclaimers before we really dive in and we recognize i mean Drew and I are both white anglo-saxon protestant males and for some of our listeners that might, you know, maybe diminish the perception of the authority that we have to speak on this topic. And I acknowledge that. And I acknowledge that my experience with sexuality is, is limited, of course, to my own upbringing and life to this point. But at the same time, we are both pastors. And so maybe where we haven't experienced personally all the different nuances of the topic of sexuality, we have worked in depth with individuals who come from a broad spectrum of backgrounds and experiences and philosophies regarding sexuality. So maybe we aren't the most qualified, but I do think that that pastoral experience has helped inform where we're going with this topic this week, and if this bleeds over into uh, multiple weeks. This has become an incredibly difficult issue to navigate, and this issue is probably deeply emotional for many of our listeners, uh, because sexuality is no longer under the banner solely of ethics or morality, but now sexuality spans psychology, sociology, and I think most importantly now anthropology, that is kind of human identity, and we'll come back to this later. There's no way for us to do this topic justice even in a few episodes, and our assumption is that our listeners generally have a Judeo-Christian worldview. There's no way for us to parse this out from every perspective and every background and every worldview. So we are going to make some assumptions. We're not trying to persuade those of a different faith background. If you're a listener and you're coming from more of a a secular or humanistic background, definitely encourage you to weigh these claims, uh, but know that we are making certain assumptions here. 
And I do want to say on the front end that we're not, when we talk about sexual ethics, we're not just talking about homosexuality. I know the church has, has really beat that drum loudly for many years, and we will certainly touch on it. But we want to look at sexual ethics from a, a more holistic biblical perspective and hit a range of topics, though homosexuality will certainly be one of those. And then just one reference here. Uh, there is a teaching that I, I listened to uh, about six months ago by John Tyson, who is a pastor in New York City. He was actually a visiting pastor at Bridgetown Church in Portland back on May, sorry, March 17th, 2019. He did a great survey of many of the topics we're going to be talking about today in more depth. So if you want to follow up teaching on this topic, you can look up that teaching by John Tyson, Bridgetown Church. Yeah, I just want to add to that disclaimer that this topic is so deeply emotional and personal. You know, on a podcast like this, what we're going for is a bit more academic and trying to just make sense a bit more intellectually of our culture and how do we think it through as followers of Jesus. But there's no way to separate this type of topic from something that's so deeply personal, deeply emotional. I would imagine for almost every single listener, and I'm I'm very aware that there are many of you listening that currently identify as a homosexual or are that's been part of your, your past history or there's a same-sex attraction that has really been a major part of your life. I'm also aware there's many listening that you're divorced. I'm aware that there's many listening and maybe even the majority listening that have at some point been in a very sexually active relationship outside of marriage. I would imagine a strong majority at this point has at some point been addicted to pornography in some way, and that's probably that journey of either wrestle and freedom has been a major part of your life. And so I I could go down the list, and then in each one of these things, all of us have somebody that we love deeply that has probably been affected by each one. We, We probably all have close family members or close friends that identify as homosexual, that are divorced. And so I just, I just want to get that out there as we talk about that, as I, I really see and we see that this is emotional, this is so personal, and you know this can't be separated. Our, our intellect here can't be separated from our history and our experience. And so please hear that as we dive into this topic. We recognize this probably brings up all sorts of things, including where there has been past wounds. And I, I think something that I, I grieve over is the way the church has, um, you know, just broadly in our nation, the way that the church has treated the homosexual community, the way that churches treated people wrestling with same-sex attraction, the way that, you know, people who've experienced a divorce and, you know, I've just sat with so many people where I've heard stories of deep pain. And so, so we really do see that. And I, I hope you hear as we dive into this, a heart of compassion. And I, I think the posture I'd want us all to have as we tackle this is recognizing that I'd imagine almost every single one of us, we have some maybe even life-defining struggle on this topic of sexuality. And it's something that has deeply affected every single one of us. And I think for anyone living in modern America who wants to be a disciple of Jesus, grappling with sexuality, whatever that looks like for you, is going to be a major part of your discipleship journey. And that levels the playing field on this conversation where the goal of this is not to create an us versus them mentality. The goal of this is not to point the finger, but the goal of this actually is to say, Lord Jesus, convict me. Where have I allowed a cultural perspective of sexuality to shape me. And for some, maybe maybe that's not at all related to homosexual attraction, but I would imagine that it certainly is other forms of sexuality in our culture and what we've allowed to shape our narrative and to shape our thoughts. So we're calling everybody here to be a disciple of Jesus. And I think especially as we tackle this topic, it's complicated, it's emotional, it's tricky. But what we're looking for is how do we embrace the topic of sexuality through the lens of 
being a disciple and through the lens of a cross and being a new creation in Christ. And I'm convinced that as we do that, no matter how complicated, painful, no matter how much we have to sort through in our own personal history, I'm just so convinced that we'll find the grace and the love of Jesus to be enough to empower us to to walk this road of discipleship. And that's something we get to do together as pilgrims, despite our background and despite our, our own personal struggles. So the, this concept of sexuality and, and the reason it's so broad is if you actually think about the messages in our culture, it's pretty amazing. You know, homosexuality is certainly a prominent one, both socially and politically right now. And I would imagine that almost every person listening has either a family member or close friend that is openly homosexual. So that certainly is an issue, but the topic is a lot broader. If you think about pornography as an example, and there are voices in our culture that would view that as perfectly okay and normal and even normative for people to express their sexuality that way. People's understanding of marriage and monogamy is another huge one. And the role of sex in relationships, is it something that is a part of any romantic relationship or is it something that is reserved for a covenantal view of marriage? And so hopefully you can see, and as we dive into maybe some of these topics that inform this conversation, depending on you know which one of those, and there's plenty others I'm sure that somebody might take, uh, you really see though that, that this branches out into all aspects of our culture, whether it's our media, our own sense of personhood, our understanding of relationships, our understanding of family, all of that ties in with this very broad view of sexuality. So with that, we want to start with the historical Christian understanding of sexuality to be able to build a basis from which we can then evaluate more modern and or secular notions of sexuality. And again, want to just acknowledge that we all have certain assumptions that are baked into us around the truth of human sexuality that have been socially formed based on our upbringing, even the location in the United States or around the world we're coming from, that our church background or non-church background is going to play an important role in how we think about human sexuality. And so I want to just briefly, again, refresh our minds with the notion of the Wesleyan quadrilateral. We've talked about that before on this podcast. And that is from the Christian perspective we are going to start with Scripture as our basis for truth, and there are a lot of reasons for that that we're not going to cover in this podcast, and this is one of the assumptions that I've stated earlier. But we are starting with the basic belief that the Scripture is inspired by God, though there are tricky and complex elements of the Scripture that take careful exegesis and hermeneutics. We are assuming that the Scriptures are truthful in their account of the nature of God, the nature of humanity, how we are to live. Then from that place, we build on or we lean on the tradition of the church over the past several thousand years, going back even before Christ into the the tradition of the Jewish scriptures. So we start with scripture and then tradition, and then we bring in to bring to bear our own experience and reason. And that's flip-flop from the way that society currently thinks about evaluating truth. It starts with my experience. And that informs my reason and how I think about truth and how I think about morality and ethics. And then through that lens, we then judge tradition and then judge the scriptures. And I see this rampant in the church today. It's very apparent, you know, on social media where somebody has a friend who is gay or trans or bi or whatever the orientation happens to be, a friend, a family member, 
It's mainstream in our media today, and that begins to really inform and form the viewpoint on sexuality. And so we want to go back beyond experience and reason and look at the scriptures as a foundation. And all of that starts in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1 through 11, of course, so many different directions we could go talking about how to interpret that. Just say a couple things today and point, again, another resource. The Pillar podcast has some great resources, a couple Old Testament scholars there, and they talk extensively about Genesis 1 through 11. But a couple things to note here. Genesis is not a science book. In, in, In particular, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are more poetic, especially the first couple of chapters. And it's interesting to note the, the cultural context or the historical context within which Genesis was written. There were other prominent creation accounts that were circulating in the ancient Near East, the Enuma Elish being one of them. And it, actually, if you go back and read other prominent creation accounts and juxtapose those against the Genesis account, you can begin to see maybe why and how some of Genesis was structured was to counter some of the Babylonian and other popular accounts of creation alive at that time. Where Genesis is not a science textbook, however, it is authoritative and accurate in its description of the nature of God, his creative agency, the relationships within which he places mankind, the relationship between God and man, the relationship among mankind, mankind's purpose in the earth. So where we maybe don't need to take an extremely literal stance today for our purposes here, we are asserting that the Genesis account is authoritative in its description of human relationships and how God formed mankind to exist and conduct ourselves in the earth. Uh, When you look at Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation narrative, there's a really beautiful kind of poetic trope that's used here where contrasts are paired together all the way throughout, especially Genesis 1. If you begin right at the very, you know, first few verses, you have this contrast of God and out of God creation. And then this contrast of darkness and out of darkness light. And then this contrast between earth and sky, this contrast between sea and land, sun and moon, sea creatures and birds and then animal and man. And this is all setting up. It's like it's building to this crescendo. And then you have the creation of Adam and then out of Adam, Eve. And that's not by accident. That is the seventh or eighth step in a process of the writer of Genesis, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, setting up these series of contrasts to show that the earth is, or creation is different from God. So that later generations wouldn't be tempted to worship creation, that light is different from darkness, and so on. And so you have the creation of Eve out of Adam, and it's assumed within the context of Jewish literature and within the context of how Genesis 1 is structured and and Genesis 2, that Eve is fundamentally a contrast to Adam. Now, the progressive opinion today is that Adam didn't need necessarily a woman as that one who would be suitable for him, that he solely needed a human. But that is contrary to the way that that Genesis account is structured. It is not insinuating that it was only Eve's humanness that qualified her to be a suitable helper for Adam, but that she was in many ways a contrast to Adam that would then complete him. So right off the bat, you have three things that emerge that are necessary for marriage, if you will, this this initial rejoining of Adam and Eve. The first was that the partners both needed to be human. 
The partners both needed to come from different families, and the partners needed to display sexual difference or otherness. This is God's basic design for human sexuality. This is the thread that is very consistent throughout the entire biblical narrative. It is oft repeated by Jesus himself, his disciples, the New Testament writers, and was affirmed for thousands of years within Jewish tradition, these three qualifications for baseline human sexuality. Now, unfortunately, within the church, there has been a and I'm speaking broadly here, the church in the West over the past many hundreds of years, generally a negative message around sexuality. And what we see here right off the bat, though, is this resounding positive yes message around human sexuality. The theme throughout the scriptures, when the scriptures deal with sexuality, is that it's intended to be this window that God created through which the world could look and see his intended relationship with mankind, that the marriage relationship and by extension, all of human sexuality would be a neon signpost to say, this is what God is like. This is his desired relationship with the church. And you see that right there in Genesis 2, when God talks about Adam and Eve leaving their families, cleaving, being joined to one another in a way that cannot be separated. Jesus reaffirming that. And then Paul quoting that in Ephesians 5. And he says then that this is a mystery, but it's actually in reference to Christ in the church. And there it's like the Holy Spirit shows his cards again. The marriage was designed to be this image, this analogy, this metaphor for Christ and the church. It is celebrated in scripture, this beautiful portrait of God and his people manifested in a husband and a wife. Sometimes people complain even that the scriptures don't speak enough positively about sexuality, that there are all these no messages. But I would counter that with the fact that there is an entire book of the Bible reserved in celebration of human sexuality in a very positive light. And that, of course, is the Song of Songs, this beautiful song eulogizing, celebrating human sexuality. I think the pleasure that is involved in human sexuality speaks to God's generosity. You think of the fact that he created taste buds and color and all these different things that we can experience in life where in terms of food, it would have been sufficient to give us you know, a gray paste that had all the nutrients and substance that we needed to survive. But he created all these different varieties of food for us to enjoy. And I think the same with human sexuality it would have been enough to procreate through you know, some more mechanical process. But the fact that it's this deeply enjoyable process, I think, speaks to God's generosity when enjoyed in its proper context. I heard a, a speaker one time give an analogy that sexuality is like fire that in its proper place, it is incredibly life-giving, beautiful, vibrant, like a fire in a fireplace. But fire outside of its context, outside of its boundaries, can become incredibly destructive. And so that's where some of the negative messages in the scriptures, or rather the warnings, come into play. It's this powerful instrument, if you will, that God created to display his glory, to display what he's like for human flourishing, for human enjoyment, when it's enjoyed in its proper context. And because it's that powerful, it's equally destructive when outside of those boundaries. That's a great overview of God's design for sexuality. I think something that if you, if we're going to take a step back and look at our cultural understanding of sex and sexuality, 
It's so much of it, you know, we talked about this the very first episode, the water we're swimming in. We talked about this the second episode, the story, the narrative that we believe, where if I live in a world where my ticket to happiness and fulfillment is to look inside of myself and my own desires and to do do what feels right to me and live true to my own self-identity, then I look at myself as a, a person who is embodied and I look at my desires and then you can kind of see where we end up with so many of our modern viewpoints on sexuality. Yeah, you know, take the example of, of marriage, I think is actually a really good one of if marriage, uh, as our culture understand it, is really a means of happiness where love, and I think it's interesting even how our culture, I believe, has rebranded the word love to predominantly mean self-love. And then in the context of a human relationship, it's my willingness to support your understanding of your own self-love. And so I've seen this quite a bit of people in a marriage where they fall out of love. And what they mean by that is that they, they no longer have the romantic emotion that they started with. And so then if they want to find happiness in life, then that means they need to go find a new partner and make some kind of change because if they're going to really love themselves, that's the best way to do it. And I look at that, and I, it's so opposite to what I see in the biblical story, where love really isn't about romance. Love is first and foremost about commitment and covenant. And what that's describing is God's covenantal love towards us, and that's then manifested in a human relationship. And so it starts with that deep abiding commitment towards another person. And it's not about what gives me the most happiness, but it's about what does it mean for me to really love sacrificially this person in the same way that I've been loved by God? And it's in that self-giving that I find fulfillment. So it's actually not when I approach the relationship thinking first and foremost, how do I get something out of this? And how do I become the person that I want to be and enjoy through this relationship? It's actually as I lay down my life and the way that Christ has laid down his, that's where I find it. It's in my self-giving and then in a spouse's self-giving back. That's where love really takes place, not in the demanding. I, I think we could take that illustration in almost any topic of sexuality, run it through that same filter of what story do we believe? And at the core, is, is this anchored in an understanding of those who are dead to self and alive in God? And then we approach human relationships with the same love that God's given to us, that sacrificial that seeks to serve the other. And I think if we did, I think that would really reframe our view of almost every topic of sexuality. And of course, there's balance to that. Of course, there are situations where somebody is in covenantal sacrificial love and their spouse is abusing them in some way. And, and there needs to be, so please hear me, there needs to be boundary and correction and at times even separation because of that. So it doesn't mean that, that that there's not a potential for abuse. And I think anything can be abused and be destructive if not done well. But I, I think rather than focusing on those situations to frame our entire view of sexuality, we need to take a step back and look at the overall story. And there's going to be dysfunction. And I would imagine there is not a single person listening to this that has not experienced the dysfunction of sexuality in some way. And that's going to be expressed differently for different ones of us. But it, there's going to be dysfunction. And that's all the more reason why we need to be clear on the story so that that's what shapes our vision, even as we grapple with the pain and the dysfunction of, of how sexuality is expressed in this life. Um, so, Mick, why don't you, as you've shared maybe the story of what we see in Genesis, why don't you take us into some of then, if that is true, what are some of the boundaries around sexuality that we see in Scripture? Yeah, so if we look at the prohibitions around sexuality, I think it's important to note that these are downstream from that original vision 
And again, this is where I think that the church has maybe gotten a bad rap because it has, in certain circles, focused more on the prohibitions than on the original vision of sexuality. I think of the God's intention for sexuality, like the trunk of the tree, and then the prohibitions maybe are tangential, you know, kind of branching out from that from that trunk. So it's hard to understand the prohibitions if you don't understand God's original intention. So if God's original intention is for sexuality to be a window into his character and a window window into the created order, how he intended it to function, then these prohibitions start to make a little bit more sense. One of the main prohibitions around human sexuality throughout the scriptures is adultery. So within the context of marriage, of course, that is one of the, the Ten Commandments. And the reason that it's prohibited, again, should be self-explanatory by this point, is because marriage is intended to be this window of this covenantal lifelong sacrificial commitment between one man and one woman. And so to to break that, to disrupt that, is to in some ways diminish the image of God in the earth. Of course, there are many practical uh, and nuanced consequences that are subject to a divorce or a separation as well. But the main one that I see in Scripture and the main one, the reason I believe it's so prominent in the Scriptures, this prohibition against adultery, is because of the way it diminishes the image of God. I think it's why Jesus spoke directly to divorce and remarriage, not just in the context of the questioning of the Pharisees, but because of the centrality of this image beginning in Genesis 1 and really all the way through Revelation 22, the the cry of the church is the spirit and the bride say come. And you have this imagery all throughout the scriptures culminating in the consummation of Jesus's return as the bridegroom, the church as the waiting bride and the marriage supper of the lamb. And so adultery in that context is an aberration. It's a distortion. And for those who are far from God or apart from God, they don't now have a signpost in the earth to look at to see that this is God's intention. So that's that's huge. And I just maybe a, a pastoral note here to say, if you are gay and you're listening, you have gay friends, you feel like the church has really kind of beaten down that door compared to maybe the church's voice regards to adultery, divorce, remarriage, all the different forms of adultery. I know we're not just talking about uh, divorce here. I do want to say, I think you've made an accurate observation. I think the church would be prudent to elevate its censorship, if you will, of of all forms of adultery, the division between spouses, the rampant rate of divorce in the church, I think is alarming and needs attention and needs to be something that the the church takes prayerfully and seriously because of the elevated importance placed on marriage in the scriptures. So adultery is prohibited. And, and by extension, divorce and separation, and we can parse that out more uh, later if needed. Secondly, of course, homosexuality. I mentioned it previously. It's not the only thing we're talking about, but it is a certainly a central theme in the scriptures regarding sexuality. And I would just like to say, even without the prohibitive verses that have become so controversial in many academic circles today and, and spilling out into cultural narratives, even without the six or seven prohibitive verses around homosexuality, I think the Genesis 1 and 2 account and then just the general meta narrative of Scripture that culminates in the marriage supper of the Lamb to me is sufficient to instruct us that homosexual relationships are outside of God's design, outside of the original intention because of that contrast, again, that was laid down in Genesis 1 and 2 
that the partner for Adam, it was not only sufficient for that partner to be human, but there had to be a contrast and otherness to point back again to the contrast between God and the church, the contrast between God and creation. And so this broader narrative, this broader picture and portrait of of marriage, to me, rules out homosexuality as an affirmed lifestyle within the biblical narrative. But then you do have these six or seven prohibitive verses, and and we're not going to go into detail on them here simply because that could take several episodes and because so much great work has been done in that regard elsewhere. And again, I'll point back to, if you want just kind of a condensed look, John Tyson, again, does a great job of that, drawing from many academic sources, a lot of his own research. And he kind of goes through each prohibitive verse, looks at the original languages, looks at ways that it has been undermined through various cultural narratives and academic attempts to distort the original meaning of those passages. But let me just assert that the prohibitive verses regarding homosexuality are pretty clear, and you have to do a lot of mental gymnastics and a lot of academic gymnastics to get around the original intention, which was to prohibit same-sex interaction when it comes to, to sexual ethics. So these are some of the prohibitions around human sexuality, adultery, homosexuality, and then by extension, and we won't go into depth here, but just about every other deviant form of sexuality other than, you know, outside the bounds of sexuality between a man and a wife and a lifelong commitment of marriage, incest, bestiality, and so on. And if you go back through Leviticus, the holiness codes, it's there's a reason that it's so extensive there because in mankind's fallenness, God knew that we would explore just about every form conceivable of deviant sexuality outside of between a man and a woman. Drew, you want to note just a a couple of others here as we wrap up today? So as you move into the New Testament, what you actually see is this idea actually goes deeper where it's things like prostitution are explicitly mentioned as outside the bounds. And then really the teaching of Jesus in, in Matthew 5, where he takes the whole notion of lust in general, where any form of sexual expression and desire that is being met outside of the bounds of a covenantal marriage is outside of God's design and God's intention. And so Jesus himself really speaks to that directly. And I think if we could zoom out a little bit, there has been a sexual revolution in the Western world the last 50 years, and that touches almost every form of sexuality, whether that is the nature of marriage, whether that is the acceptance, the social acceptance of sexual expression in any form of media, pornography and the proliferation of pornography, especially with the internet. And Mick, as you mentioned, whether it's homosexuality um, or even what is romantic relationship and what is normal in romantic relationship. Uh, Of course, all of these things have been found all throughout history, but I would say the social fabric in our nation has changed as far as what's considered normal, helpful, good. There, There has been a fairly dramatic shift in the last 50 years. What I think is interesting to note, though, is our society today is not that dissimilar from the world of the New Testament. Of course, there are big differences, but in the, in the time where, where Jesus was speaking in the surrounding nations around Israel, even going back further into Israel's history, there was much more leniency towards sexual expression where, you know, every culture might be a little bit different, but typically it was incest 
and adultery were the two things that were off limits. But other than that, anything would go. It was considered very normal for someone to have sex with a prostitute or at least a man to have sex with a prostitute. Various forms of homosexuality were considered normal. It, it was very typical for a person, even even a man, to have multiple mar- uh, multiple sexual partners outside the bounds of marriage. And, and so all of that was considered normal. And so the teaching of Scripture has always been against the grain of the surrounding world when it comes to sexuality. And I think that's something for us to remember, is that following Jesus is a narrow road where there is great beauty in God's design for sexuality, but there, there's also a narrowness to how that gets to be expressed. And as we wrap up this, this episode, I want to end on a pastoral note because there is not a single person listening that has not been deeply affected by this topic of sexuality. And I fully recognize that there have been certain things, whether it was the church's treatment of those who identify as homosexual and just so many really sad stories we've heard. And I'm sure there's listeners that either do or have identified that way. And I I just, as I've heard people's stories, I grieve. I grieve at the um, ways that they were treated, often in ways that were very, very hurtful. But going far beyond homosexuality, this has affected every single one of us. And odds are about 50-50 that you grew up in a home where there was a divorce. And I'm sure many of you listening have also experienced a divorce yourself. They've experienced some kind of relationship where it turned sexual in a way that was outside the bound of Scripture. Just statistically, I would say the majority of those listening have at some point in their life been addicted to pornography or may currently be addicted to pornography. And this doesn't even touch the ways that listeners have experienced sexual abuse or other forms of sexuality in our culture and the images, that whether it's the body images or the way that we continue to objectify people. I mean, I could go down the list of ways that sexuality has affected us. And so I just want to end on that note to say there's a level playing field here of that the purpose of this episode is not to call out any one group of people, whether those who do or have identified with homosexuality or same-sex attraction or those who have experienced a divorce or any other aspect that's happened in life. I think at this point, most of us have been affected in some way, of course, some more than others. You know, and, that, and that's where we really look to the grace of God. We look to the mercy of Jesus in our lives. And as the church, we absolutely want to be a place of compassion and a place where people are able to come, whatever their background might be, and experience the love, forgiveness, and grace of Jesus. At the same time, that's also all the more reason why we have to point to the clarity of Scripture of what is God's design, because our culture is, is proclaiming such a different message. And it's not just saying a certain form of sexuality is okay. The different message goes much deeper than that of actually saying who you are as a person is defined by your sexuality and that your fulfillment in life will be dictated by your sexual fulfillment. And I'd say that for most of us, there is going to be a conflict there. And that is uh, somebody who does deal with same-sex attraction. That is a person who is single and would love to be married. That's a person in a marriage that is not sexually fulfilling or there's some other struggle that's going on. I mean, I could go down thing after thing after thing and person after person after person where how we interpret situations in this life are just going to be different based on what story we're living out of. And the story is much deeper than any one action. And so that's why we keep going back to that to say, if at the end of the day, this is about a cross, this is about a life of discipleship, of sacrificial love, and of laying down ourselves and being willing to put every aspect of our life on the altar, and that includes our sexuality, 
then and only then that we actually find the resurrected life of Jesus. That actually change, changes just about every aspect of who we are and who we understand ourselves to be, and it puts us in tension. And so hopefully you hear this today with great love and compassion and empathy as we recognize that all of us are struggling with this and grappling this. But what we're advocating for today is let's let our fixed point be the scripture and really allow the word of God to define us and to define what it means for us to be a person. And then let's together seek the grace of God as we seek to live in accordance with his word and with his truth, but from a perspective of great grace, great love, and great humility. So God bless you, and we'll talk a bit more next week about how do we make sense of a sexually charged culture and how do we follow Jesus in the midst of it.